From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. In today's podcast, pseudopods abound. Part two. We use hourly PHMB or chlorhexidine with either brolin or hexamidine. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Today is part two of my interview with John Dart on acanthamoeba. We pick up where he left off last time. Once diagnosis is established, how is acanthamoebal keratitis treated? Well, our protocol, like everybody's, is empirical. Um, we introduced the use of biguanides, and uh, currently, those are the only um, agents which show um, to, to which the organism is fully sensitive. We haven't, we've never shown in vitro a resistance to um, chlorhexidine or polyhexamethylbiguanide (PHMB), which are the two biguanides we use. Sorry, this is um, resistance of the cyst form of the disease. The trophozoites, as I mentioned, are susceptible to almost anything you care to throw at them, but the cysts are resistant to everything except for the biguanides at the moment. Some of them, a proportion of the cysts are susceptible to diamidines, that's broline and hexamidine, which is available in Europe. It's a sort of French uh, uh, French broline. We, we have broline over the counter for treatment of minor bacterial infections. Patients can just buy it in the pharmacy shops here. But uh, um, the, the, a lot of the organisms are resistant to those um, diamidines now. So we use uh, PHMB uh, or chlorhexidine, um, I usually combine that with a diamidine, not because I necessarily think it's any better, but some of my colleagues feel that it may be. And uh, so we use hourly PHMB or chlorhexidine with either broline or hexamidine. I'll use it overnight in early cases and then hourly during the day thereafter for the first week. And then I'll taper the treatment because it is quite toxic. The diamidines are particularly toxic. The reason for using intensive treatment, which I, I didn't use to uh, 15 years ago before we understood more about the pathogenesis, is that probably giving the drug pushes the trophozoites into encysting. And we know from laboratory studies on the organisms and their sensitivity that it takes them two or three days for it takes two or three days for a, for a cyst to become mature when it becomes much more resistant to treatment. So you're really trying to hit them very hard when they're still more susceptible to uh, treatment. And then I taper the treatment tr treatment slowly from uh, hourly for about a week, and then we'll taper that down to six times a day. But I keep it going until the patients have been inflammation-free for at least a month. I will use steroid if I need to. If the patient's uh, comfortable and they've got a moderate amount of inflammation, um, uh, I don't use steroid. But if they start to get... Um, uh, a rather necrotic ulcer which won't epithelialize or if they start to get severe corneal 
uh, inflammation with vascularization or a severe limbitis, then I'll introduce topical steroid at the lowest dose that I think uh, I can um, that I think is effective, and that can have a dramatic effect, uh, dramatically beneficial effect on the uh, outcome of the disease, providing uh, you're using an effective um, anti-amoebic, which is the ones I mentioned, uh, one of the big guanides. That's still a controversial area, and some American colleagues I know say they won't use steroid at all. I think they're mistaken, but uh, the weight of evidence uh, from the published series is that steroids, providing they're used with an effective anti-amoebic, can be beneficial. One of the things that steroids do is that they prompt the amoeba to ex-cyst, to to convert back into the trophozoite phase, um, during which it's easier to... To, to kill them with topical therapy. Is there a role in using steroids to try to get the organisms out of the uh, cyst phase? Well, that's theoretical, and uh, it's been shown in uh, the animal model, and I think it's been shown in vitro as well, that steroid uh, causes um, excisment. Uh, I have to say I don't use steroids for any type of infection unless I really feel I need to because the patient's got intolerable pain, won't heal, or got severe inflammation. So uh, I don't think we should be using steroids because it, it's, uh, it, it, may, it may help, but I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think, it, I think it's uh, because of we know how important the immune response is to clearing the organism, I think we should uh, limit it to patients who really need the steroid because they've got inflammation, which is too severe to manage without it. For those patients for whom you feel compelled to use steroids, how soon would you feel comfortable starting them? Well, I, I personally, I don't start them for two weeks. They can usually the patients can usually hang on for that length of time. Because I often get patients like the patient I was talking about, who I've just been treating this morning. Um, he arrived on Thursday with a two-month history, and uh, he's been part treated for fungal, part treated for amoeba. Uh, in his case, we've withdrawn the steroid that he was on, and uh, we can keep him comfortable with sleeping tablets. Um, analgesia. I usually use uh, codeine and paracetamol, cocodamol. Uh, which comes in various strengths in the UK, um, and we use oral non-steroidals for the limbitis and uh, scleritis, which is, is, is often very uncomfortable. So you can keep patients going for that length of time. And uh, so I won't generally use it for two weeks until I've... This is, again, entirely empirical, but it gives us a chance to really clobber the cystin trophozoites in the cornea before introducing steroid, because I want to be sure we've killed as many as possible. John, just to clarify, the Moorfields treatment protocol for acanthamoeba keratitis uh, would include Q one-hour treatment with a biguanide for the first 48 hours and then, continue, uh, then continuing uh, Q one-hour treatment during the, the day only that, that's for, correct. Yeah. for a, a couple weeks after. And um, you, you mentioned in the paper that the average length of treatment for acanthamoeba keratitis is, is actually about six months. Yeah, well, that's based um, uh, on uh, two national surveys and uh, I think 350 cases reported, which were uh, my collaborator, Cherry Radford, did that uh, work. We have something called the British Ophthalmic Surveillance Unit, which is run by the College of Ophthalmologists, a bit similar to the American Academy. And uh, what they do is they send out a centralized um, system for sending out report cards to all the consultant ophthalmologists in the UK, and it's quite a good way of studying rare diseases. So we've got good data on that. With series we reported with Graham Dugard, who was the first author of 100, over 100 cases, um, I think our mean treatment period was actually six 
six to eight weeks then. So most of those were, were not complicated cases. They, were, they came early, were picked up at the hospital. And uh, we can have patients on treatment for as little as five or six, uh, five or six weeks. But if you take all the cases, the, the figure you're, you're quoting, uh, patients who often haven't been diagnosed for two or three months, who have a much worse prognosis, and even then, the, the, I think the mean treatment period, and you quoted it from the paper, was um, uh, was, was, was about uh, four to six months, something like that. John, what is the Moorfields treatment protocol for acanthamoebal limbitis and scleritis? Well, that's... Um, that's that, that's also a good question because uh, 10 or 12 years ago, um, the eyes that we lost were the ones who the, from, were from the patients who couldn't put up with the pain anymore. And all these patients had uh, severe scleritis and some of them had necrotizing scleritis. Um, and so they had really red eyes and the cornea was pretty bad, but not necessarily that bad. And we use non-steroidals like uh, we use oral fluobiprofen. You may not have that in the U.S., but it's very similar to ibuprofen. And that can be quite effective when the disease is mild. But um, the ones that we were enucleating, the ones where the patient said, look, I can't stand this anymore. I've got to have it out. Our pathology department had looked at 11 enucleated eyes and hadn't found any um, any extra corneal extension of, of the organism into the sclera. I'd done biopsies on a lot of these patients and we couldn't find any, uh, uh, any acanthamoeba in the sclera. And we realized that for most patients, this was an immune response causing the scleritis, not due to invasion of uh, acanthamoeba into cornea. And uh, when we realized that, it opened the door to treating the scleritis independently from the keratitis. So the patient's corneal disease was being treated with uh, the guanide anti-amoebic, and we treated the scleritis just like you treat any other scleritis, high doses of oral prednisolone to get the thing under con- disease under control, uh, together with um, oral cyclosporin, or if that wasn't appropriate, another immunosuppressant, just like you would for idiopathic scleritis. We published um, a series of 19 cases in ophthalmology some years ago, showing excellent outcomes. I've uh, since had a few patients who developed scleral abscesses, and we couldn't show on that treatment, and we couldn't show any extra corneal extension, but that does worry me a little bit. So I've started to use itraconazole, uh, which is an antifungal, uh, which is effective against trophozoites, and I've used that um, orally at the same time as using the systemic uh, immunosuppressive treatment because that's effective against trophozoites and you'd expect it to mop up any organisms that were um, invading the sclera from the cornea as a result of the immunosuppressive treatment. So in brief, we treat the scleritis as a separate entity from the keratitis, but we do use some prophylaxis now and I haven't actually published on that yet, but um, we, we intend to do that. Now, you make the point in the paper that the assumption that we should make as clinicians is that the infection is diffuse and involves the entire cornea. Having said that, what is the role of surgery in the treatment of acanthamoebal keratitis? Well, that again is not controversial in the UK, but possibly because of our teaching. We have a huge experience. We've published over one series of over 180 culture-positive cases, and and the results of um, keratoplasty, therapeutic keratoplasty, are very uncertain. And I, I don't I think we published one paper years ago showing about one-third recurred. You will clear the disease up in some patients, but if it comes back, you're in real problems. So I've had to do, uh, I I have to do um, therapeutic keratoplasties in patients who are perforated. It doesn't happen very often, so I'm still doing them. 
And inevitably, most of those patients who are, who are bad, the disease comes back within 10 days or two weeks and the organism uh, look, has got this nice new food source in the donated cornea and starts to reinvade the donated cornea. And in the old days, before biguanide therapy, one of the treatments was to do a therapeutic keratoplast. You kept repeating it, possibly until you exhausted the supply of organisms in the peripheral host cornea. But now I only carry out um, therapeutic keratoplasty for uh, when I have to because the, there's a perforation or the patient's developed an intumescent cataract. It's another occasional reason for doing that and you can't deal with it any other way. And um, I think you should treat the, my own belief is that because the keratoplasties do so badly in, in actively infected eyes, you should wait until you've treated the infection, which is almost always possible, even in severe cases, providing you continue therapy for long, long enough using the sort of guidelines that I've suggested. When a patient does not respond to therapy and subsequent cultures are negative, how do we distinguish between patients who continue to have an active acanthamoebal keratitis and those who have persistent but sterile inflammation. Yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that is a difficult one because you know, doing repeat cultures and biopsies is helpful if they're positive but not helpful if they're negative as you may just have missed the organism and I don't think confocal would tell you either. So what will happen in those cases is that providing you treat the inflammation, um, uh, then eventually the uh, the drive the stimulus to inflammation settles as the organisms are slowly cleared, from, the dead organisms are slowly cleared from the cornea. So I use adequate levels of anti-inflammatory treatment. Uh, both the scleritis doesn't usually last for more than three or four months. Once you've got on top of it, you can taper off the systemic drugs. You may then need topical steroids for a long time. I always keep uh, a biguanide going four times a day until I've discontinued all the topical steroid. And the patient very slowly tapers the steroid. If the eye flares up, they use a bit more. And over a period of months, they'll be able to taper the steroid off. They continue the biguanide four times a day. Once they've stopped the steroid, I ask them to continue the biguanide four times daily for another month. And if the eye is not inflamed, those patients are cured. I haven't been caught out yet. It'll probably happen, but um, that, that's what we recommend. And then how do you manage the patient who is persistently culture positive? Well, that's extremely tough, and uh, we reported, I think, 11 out of 180 culture-positive cases where we repeatedly cultured the organism. We sent those off to Simon Kildington, who's one of the co-authors of the paper, who's a protozoologist, and certainly using his uh, techniques for measuring um, amoebic um, uh, sensitivity of cysts to, to the drugs, we couldn't show any resistance. So what we've, but what may be happening is that uh, the um, biguanides may not be penetrating deeply enough. Um, where we really don't know exactly what's going on. So we've, um, if they have, if they've been on PHMB and not chlorhexidine, we document all the antimebics they've been on, and we'll switch between the two biguanides we have, PHMB and chlorhexidine, and we'll switch between propamidine and hexamidine and use dual therapy. Uh, if we've exhausted those combinations, then we'll up the concentration of PHMB to 0.06%, which we've, we've used. It's a bit more toxic, but you can use that quite successfully for long periods. And we've just started to use chlorhexidine at, at a 0.2% concentration. That's the concentration that's been reported in one randomized controlled trial of um, uh, antifungal therapy comparing chlorhexidine 0.2% to natamycin. This was done in, I think, in Bangladesh. 
and um, reported in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, and chlorhexidine 0.2% was more effective than natamycin, and they didn't have any adverse effects. We're using it for longer periods in amoebic disease, and I think you need to um, look to the patient very carefully for signs of toxicity, but we've, uh, we're just starting to use that therapy. And the other uh, thing that we, we've done, which is reported years ago, is to use cryotherapy on the cornea. So if none of that's worked, we'll use uh, double freeze thaw cryotherapy using um, a retinal probe, uh, treat the whole cornea, you'll probably destroy the endothelium. But um, uh, uh, what that's supposed to do is to make the cysts um, uh, much more susceptible to big guanine therapy so you can continue your medical therapy. And I've treated one case successfully that way, and I've recently treated uh, one other that way who's, um, who's still got problems. What factors correlate with a better or worse outcome? What are the prognostic indicators? Yeah, well, that's, that's, again, another excellent question, a very important learning point, because um, there are several papers now showing that um, if you delay therapy for more than three weeks, effective antimebic therapy for, for more than three weeks, the prognosis is worse. We published a four-week period years ago, and this was just looking at the outcomes of the patients. It was very easy to see which ones did badly. The, the diagnosis delayed for four weeks. They did much worse. But I think three weeks has been uh, identified in a couple of other papers, and uh, the earlier, the better. Um, if you can diagnose them within three weeks, very few patients do badly. Now, that's quite a long time, and the problem that ophthalmologists have is not recognizing the fact that amoeba is quite a common disease in the developed world. In the UK, it makes up about 6 to 8% of all um, uh, reported culture-positive cases of keratitis in London. It may be less. It's down to 1% in India. It's probably somewhere in between in the U.S. And don't forget the patients who are not contact lens wearers because they make up, in the U.K., up to 15% of the um, patients aff- affected by amoeba keratitis. They've usually had trauma uh, and been exposed to contaminated water or soil. So if you've got a keratitis patient who isn't getting better, herpes is a potential cause. But um, uh, in the UK, um, uh, camptomoeba is more common than fungal, filamentary fungal disease, and that's probably the case in the northern United States. And don't forget it. So you need to go and take those patients for repeat cultures, confocal microscopy, uh, send them off somewhere where they have a confocal microscope. That I, although I think it's possibly uh, over-relied on, I think it's a very useful tool you may pick up cases that way and go to a corneal biopsy. Don't hang around on patients who are getting worse and just treat them with steroids and see them every couple of weeks thinking they've got herpes. John, what are your recommendations for clinicians? Well, the first is to be aware of acanthamoeba as one of the commoner causes of um, persisting uh, non-responsive corneal infection. And, and uh, acanthamoeba is... Uh, say in the UK, it's common than filamentary fungus. It's more common than yeasts. Um, and uh, the other organisms that you should consider are mycobacteria and leucardia. And uh, do the appropriate cultures and ask your, as well as fungi, do the appropriate cultures and um, uh, and um, biopsy if necessary and ask this pathology department to look for um evidence of those. You need to consider herpes as well, and it's a difficult uh, situation. You know, some, some patients with amoeba uh, probably do have coexisting herpes infection, but it's relatively easy to treat these days with oral acyclovir and, and topical acyclovir, so you can have patients on dual therapy if necessary, although I try to avoid it.
uh, advice to contact lens wearers are to be uh, daily disposables. We do see infection in daily disposables, um, probably in patients who are showering and swimming in their lenses. They should dispose of the lenses after that. If they're using a contact lens case, they must change the cases frequently and adhere to um, adhere to the contact lens uh, manufacturing instructions with regard to hygiene. I mean, poor hygiene is definitely a major risk factor for amoebic infection, and 90% of contact lens wearers have been carrying out a risky procedure, which is why they get the problem with infection. John Dart, thank you so much. No, thanks, Josh, and uh, it's very nice to speak to you again. John Dart is consultant ophthalmologist in the Corneal and External Disease Service and Deputy Director of Research at Moorfields. He's also Honorary Reader at University College London. He's at the Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, United Kingdom. His paper, Acanthamoeba Keratitis, Diagnosis and Treatment Update 2009, appears in the October 2009 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Dart or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.